All is on. Uh, let's say you were to die tonight and you stood before God and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer him? The answer I hear most often uh, to that second question is they do good things to other people. Uh, sometimes they'll add that they believe in God or they'll go to church. But by and large, people believe that their standing with God is because they do good things for other people. Generally, I think that they mean that they might do good things for their neighbor who needs some help. The older lady across the street might need some, some uh, her grass cut from time to time. Uh, someone might need a favor done. You know, I think I'm going to add a third hypothetical question to those two diagnostic questions. What would you say if God asked you if you love your enemies? Because that drills down a bit more uh, to, to the point. Our text tells us that we cannot be children of God unless we love our enemies. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Our text tells us, We must love our enemies, and if we do not love our enemies, we're not children of the Most High. It's telling us we must love our enemies without exception. Because God is is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil, if you are His child, you will love your enemy. You will love all your enemies without exception. What does it mean for you to love your enemies? Because that just seems impossible to do. Well, that's the point. Unless you have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, you cannot love your enemies. Let's look at the passage. First of all, verses 27 and 28, we are commanded to practice an unnatural love. Notice the four commands in verse 27 and 28. We are commanded to love. We're commanded to do good. We're commanded to bless. We're commanded to pray. And that's great. Likely all of us here this morning who who are seeking to worship God have done all of those four things. You've loved. You've done good. You've blessed. And you've prayed. So what makes this command to love to be unnatural? Well, we likely have not done those things toward our enemies. We've likely not loved our enemies, done good to our enemies, blessed our enemies, and prayed for our enemies. Because that is a very unnatural thing to do. And Jesus is commanding us 
to practice a truly unnatural love. Listen to verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. The command to love your enemies in verse 27 is a summary statement. And then the next three t- commands tell you how to, how to do that. He says, love your enemies. Then he tells you how to do that. First of all, you are to do good to those who hate you. Love is not just a feeling. Love is not, you know, an ooey-gooey emotion in your, in your belly. The, the little butterflies in your belly. It's, love is not a noun. It is a verb. Love is active. You are commanded to do good toward your enemies. You know, it's one thing to refrain from harming your enemy. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't harm your enemy. He's saying something quite different. He is saying that you are commanded to do good to them. To do good to them that hate you. Imagine someone hates you. Now think of you doing something good for that person. Not only are you to do good to those who hate you, you are commanded to speak kind words, kind words of blessing to those who are cursing you. Not only are you to speak words, kind words of blessing, you are to do so with gentleness and with grace. And with patience while they are attacking you in anger. Thirdly, you are to pray for those who abuse you. You know, something happens when you are constantly bringing a person before God's throne of grace and pleading for that person. You know, that person may not change. But your attitude towards them begins to change. Is there anybody that you should start praying for? Because your attitude towards them needs to change. Kent Hughes tells the story of a missionary family whose life was entangled with some people who were hard to love. And we all are likely to have people in our lives who are hard to love. And so Kent Hughes begins his story saying, Several years ago, one of my wife's friends took a missionary furlough with her husband and her family after an unusually tiring stint of service. She had been looking forward to this time with great anticipation. For the first time, she was going to have a place of her own, a new, large, townhouse-styled apartment, and it's going to have a beautiful patio with it. And she was a very creative woman. She, um, she made the patio the focus of all her decoration. But after a few months, some new neighbors moved in. And the best word to describe them, as Kent Hughes uh, tells it, would be describe them as coarse. There was loud music day in and, day, and all day, all night, with a constant flow of obscenities. They urinated in the front yard in broad daylight. 
They totally disrupted her peace. Her focus was her patio. Every time she goes outside, she's being confronted with these people, these next-door neighbors. She could see nothing good in them. And so she asked the Lord to help her to be more loving. But all she got back was disgust and rejection from her neighbors. And so the crisis uh, came to a head when she returned home to discover her neighbor's children had sprayed orange paint all over her beautiful patio. The walls, the floors, everything. And so she was distraught and furious. She tried to pray, but she found herself crying out, I cannot love them because I hate them. Knowing she had to deal with the sin in her heart, she began to converse with the Lord in her inner being. And a scripture came to mind. From Colossians 3.14, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so in her heart, she questioned, Lord, how do I put on love? And the only way she could picture it was by putting on a coat. So that's what she determined to do. She chose to wrap herself in the love of God. And as a result, she began to experience a deeper life um, of, of Christ within her. And so what she did was she made a list of what she would do if she really loved her exasperating neighbors. And then she sought to carry out the things that she put on the list. She sought to do for them uh, these loving things. She baked cookies. She offered to babysit for free. She invited the mother over for coffee. And you know what's going to happen. The most beautiful thing happened. The neighbors didn't change. That's not what happened. Rather, she began to know and understand her neighbors. She began to see that they were living under tremendous pressures. She began to love her enemies. She did good to them. She lent to them without expecting anything back. The day came when her neighbors moved, and this woman, she wept. A surprising love had captured her heart. A supernatural love. The love of Jesus Christ. The love that Christ is commanding us to exercise towards our neighbors. Because this love is is so unnatural to us, Jesus gives us five examples to drive his point home through our thick heads and our self-centered hearts. Look at verses 29 through 31. Jesus says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do uh, to you, do so to them. In verses 28 and, and uh, through 30, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. hyperbole. Uh, remember, Jesus is the king of hyperbole. He says, if your right hand or causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Do we take him seriously? Or rather, do we, we do take him seriously. Do we take him literally? Do we woodenly obey exactly what he is telling us to do? 
you know, I've said it in the past few weeks as uh, instances of Jesus using hyperbole have come up. I don't see any uh, one-handed people out there. I don't see any people with patches over their right eye. In another place, Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Can a, ca- can a camel go through the eye of a needle? No. He's using hyperbole. These sayings and others are clearly hyperbole to drive his point home, to make it stick, because he's speaking to hard-headed and self-centered people. In our passage, Jesus is not forbidding self-defense. He's not teaching that we should accept physical abuse. When Jesus says, someone takes your cloak and do not withhold your tunic either, a cloak was the outer garment. A tunic was the inner garment. A tunic was the underwear. In other words, Jesus is not telling us to walk around naked if somebody wants your, your cloak and your, and your tunic, your, your, your outer garments and your underwear. Nor is Jesus telling us to give to every panhandler that begs from us. Yesterday, coming back from Georgia, uh, we stopped at a truck stop to get gas. And there was a panhandler out in the little median. Not more than 20 feet from him was a great, great big sign that said, Help Wanted. And it was, they were hiring for something that this man could obviously have been able to do. And so what am I to do? Because he's begging, give him something and enable um, whatever was causing him to be out there begging, whether it be a drug addiction or whatever else. I didn't know the man. But just because he's begging doesn't mean that we are to, um, to give. In verse, Jesus expects us to understand the literally literary device of hyperbole. And I'm not saying it's uh, wrong to give a panhandler. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I just I want you to understand that Jesus is using hyperbole in this passage. Verses 29 and 30 cannot be applied woodenly. First Peter, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians says, if someone will not work and they are being uh, lazy, they should not eat. And so what would they do? They would beg. And that's, so it, Jesus is not telling us to, uh, to obey this, um, these verses woodenly. Rather, what Jesus is doing is he is driving home his point that we are patiently, to patiently endure when grievous wrongs are committed against us. If you look at this carefully, in each instance, he is saying, don't be self-concerned. You should be so loving toward your enemies that when they wrong, wrong you, you should patiently endure and seek to do good to them. He's very serious about this. That's why he's using these exaggerated examples. We are to patiently endure 
even when grievous wrongs are being committed against us. Or let me add some context to make it clear what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 27, right at the beginning. He says, but I say to you, in other words, there's a conjunction. Uh, or, and this conjunction, but, connects us up to verses 20 through 26 that we looked at last week. He's specifically referring back to 22 and 23, verses 22 and 23. Jesus is telling his, his newly named disciples, he just, the night before, uh, chose his 12 disciples and he says to them, verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. He mentions the reward being great in heaven here in verse 23. He mentions it again in verse 35. Your reward will be great. So these, these passages are connected. For so their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the persecution that they will face as his followers and as his apostles that are sent out to preach uh, the gospel. The end of Matthew 10 outlines the brutality of hatred that will be directed against them. Most of the, of the apostles would be martyred. And so how are they to respond to that severe persecution that they are going to have to endure? Not in retaliation or anything else. They are to love their enemies and patiently endure the wrongs committed against them. Now the temptation would be for Jesus' apostles to contemplate vengeance if if, if wrongs are committed against you or to nurse their hatred. Or even further still, to throw themselves a great big pity party. Woe is me, all these people hate me, all these things they're doing to me, the the suffering is too big for me to endure. Jesus will not allow them to do that, no matter how unfair, no matter how bad the wrongs committed against them, no matter how great the suffering He will not even allow them secret thoughts and desires of vengeance or hatred. He wants them to truly, from their heart, love their enemies. And then He wants them to act accordingly. To do good to those who hate them. To bless them that curse them. And to pray for those who abuse them while patiently enduring the wrongs that are being committed against them. Here's the issue. And frankly, this is where it gets personal. If you are contemplating vengeance, if you are nursing hatred, or you're having a great big pity party, it means that you are concerned with yourself rather than being concerned with the eternal welfare of your enemy. In other words, you're being self-centered. You're being selfish, Jesus is saying. That's the, that is the corollary, the inescapable corollary. And so you need to repent and ask God for forgiveness. Let me direct you again to verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies... And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. In other words, what Jesus is saying, if you are His child, if you are a child of the Father, God loves His enemies. So you must love your enemies. God loves His enemies for God so loved the world. God does good to His enemies. Matthew 5.45 He makes His Son to rise on the evil uh, and on the good. He sends His rain on the just and the unjust. God lends with no expectation of return. God so loved that He gave His one and only Son. Romans 5, verses 6 through 10 makes this very clear. Verse 6, Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the we, for, as it says here, for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. God extended His love to us, to the ungodly, to sinners, to His enemies. We are infinitely unworthy of His love. He did not just love us with some ooey-gooey emotional feeling. He does good to us. He gives to us His own Son to be the sin sacrifice in our place. As Spurgeon said, and as I am fond of repeating, it seems as if God loves us more than He loves His own Son. He doesn't love us more than He loves His own Son. But it is quite evident He loves us no less because He gave His Son to die on the cross in order that we might live. So what gives us the right to withhold love from anyone? Enemy or otherwise? We cannot pick and choose who we love. We cannot pick and choose... Um, to put conditions on our love. The world does that. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 32 through 34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus is saying here in verses 32 through 34 that the world's love has limits. I'll certainly love you up to a limit and not beyond. You're only expected to love those who love you. You're only expected to do good to those who return the favor. The idea is that we we love and seek uh, to bless those who... Um, the idea that, 
that, that we'd love to seek and, and, and bless those who hate us and abuse us, that idea does not even occur to the world. The idea that we are to patiently endure wrongs committed against us, well, that just seems insane to the world. But that's what our Lord expects. So how can we do that if it is so unnatural, if it is impossible? Well, only by the grace of God. If we are God's children, remember verse 35? If we are God's children, we'll love like God loves, we'll love our enemies. If we are God's children, God will empower us to love us with His unnatural, His unconventional, His supernatural love. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and I'm making Paul's argument here from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So you can love the most abusive people and do good to them. And let me make this little caveat. Jesus is not saying that you have to, to stay in a physically abusive marriage. Ladies, if there is a physical abuse, I'm, I'm not talking about getting in arguments from time to talk, and I'm talking about the physical abuse. You're, you're, you're not required. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can patiently endure the most unjust wrongs that have been done to you. And you can not only endure, but you can thrive in God's grace. With God, it is possible. It is unbelief to think otherwise. Just a quick concluding story. After the, the uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, no person in all of East Germany was more despised than the former communist dictator, Erich Honecker. He had been stripped of all his offices. Even the co- Communist Party rejected him. And so he was kicked out of his villa, and the new government refused him and his wife any kind of housing. So the Honeckers, who were head over East Germany, were now homeless and destitute. But a German pastor lived in the area. His name was Uwe Holmer, and he was the director of, Christian, of the Christian Help Center in Berlin. He became aware of the Honecker Straits, and Pastor Holmer felt it would be wrong to give them a room that was meant for even needier people um, than, um, than the Honickers. So what did he do? He decided that the former dictator and his wife could live in their own, in the, the Homer's home with them. Eric Honecker's wife, Margot, she had ruled East Germany's educational system for 26 years. Eight of Pastor Homer's ten children had been turned down for higher education due to Miss Honecker's policies which discriminated against Christians. Now the Homers were caring for their personal enemy, the most hated man in Germany, caring for them in their own home. This kind of love, so unnatural, so unconventional, so supernatural, so Christ-like, By the grace of God, the homers love their enemies. 
They did good to them. They blessed them. They prayed for them. They turned the other cheek. They gave their enemies their coat, so to speak. They gave them their own home. They did to the Hanukkahs what they would have wished the Hanukkahs would have done to them. If we consider ourselves to be true followers of Christ, if we consider ourselves to be children of the Most High, this love is our call. We are to love our enemies, to truly love them by God's grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make us a loving people. You have said that we would be distinguishable from the world by our love. Lord, the the world loves, but they love only with reciprocation. The world loves only to a point. God, you have loved us with a love inexpressible. Because you have loved us with a love that calls you to send your son Jesus to go to that awful cross, to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Help us to love with that same love because we ourselves have been partakers of your unnatural, unconventional, supernatural love that is found only in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.